Um, well, hey, we're going to get into the word today, but before we do that, I want to pray. Lord, thank you so much for this Sunday. Thank you for bringing us here, for gathering us. Lord, we, we, uh, we appreciate the sunshine after some, some rainy days, some snowy days. So, Lord, we pray that you would just bring light through your word and be honored today in Jesus' name. Amen. So, we've been in Daniel, if you've been with us, a lot, most of you have been with us over the last few weeks. Um, Daniel, as you know, is a book in the Old Testament, and um, in the first six chapters, which we've been going through, had to do with Daniel and his friends and their faith as they were exiles in a foreign land, as they were put in a, in a difficult environment, and how their faith survived a fiery furnace, how their faith survived a lion's den, how their faith was put to the test over and over and over again, and yet it remained strong. They remained focused on Christ. And then as we got into the second part of Daniel last week, we started getting into prophecy. And I don't know how you approach prophecy in the Bible. Some of us are really excited about prophecy, right? Yeah, we got in, in uh, raise your hand if you're excited about biblical prophecy. Awesome. That's, I would say that is more than typical in churches, which is good. Um, so we started getting into prophecy, which, which God was basically giving Daniel visions about what would happen in the future. And amazingly, last week we looked at this amazing passage in, in Daniel 7 where God shares about the Son of Man. He predicts Jesus, and when Jesus um, comes on the scene, he, he calls himself the Son of Man. He fulfills the prophecy in Daniel. And now as we continue on, we're moving past Daniel 8, which is more because Daniel 8 just explains um, some of Daniel 7, and it gets into talking more about the Greek prophecy and stuff like that. Um, I wanted to move forward, and, and feel free to read that. I just didn't think there was anything essential in there that we needed to grab hold of. Um, so we're moving to Daniel 9, and Daniel 9 is—there's uh, really three waves to Daniel 9. There's three waves to it. The first wave is called intercession. Daniel intercedes for his people. He cries out on their behalf. Um, he goes to, goes to battle— um, before God for his people. So that's the first wave of Daniel 9. The second wave is called prophecy, where Daniel receives a prophetic response from the angel Gabriel. He receives uh, a prophecy in response to crying out. And then the third wave is called controversy. <laughs> There's controversy in Daniel 9. Um, it comes when it talks about 70 weeks or 70 sevens. And there's been debate in the church for ages about what that means. And so as I thought about, well, what could we focus on this week? What does God have for us? I want to cover all three waves, but I, I want to spend the majority of the time on the first wave of intercession. Because that's actually the majority of the text in, in Daniel 9 talks about Daniel interceding for his people. And I think that's important for us to talk about what it means to intercede for others. So this is how I put it, the question of intercession. What does it look like to fight for others spiritually? To, to, to go to war on our knees, to battle for people spiritually. 
And that's where most of Daniel 9 lands. And I think sometimes it's a challenge for us because we live in a very individualistic, consumer culture, sometimes to focus on other people and where they're at spiritually. So I'm going to be 39 this year. And I know in, like, at least in my parents' generation, that was the time of the typical midlife crisis. So, like, that's when 39 was the year my dad had a midlife crisis. And really, it was pretty mild. He didn't, like, I'm, I'm not going to, he, uh, he, he didn't, like, buy a Harley or anything at that point. But he, um, he questioned a lot about what he had built in his life, his career. And through that process, he ended up going into ministry. So it was more of a time of taking stock of who he was and what he wanted to do and deciding, like, I, you know, I really feel called to ministry. And so maybe you've had a—and by the way, if I show up with a Harley here on a Sunday, um, host an intervention for me, okay? <laughs> you have absolute permission to do that. Uh, if I start dyeing my hair black or something, just intervene. But maybe you've had a season in your life where you've really questioned what God has for you. You've questioned what your life has been to this point and, and what God wanted to do with you moving forward. Maybe you're in that time right now. You're in a time of questioning. Some people uh, would call it a deconstruction that would lead them to deconstruct their faith. Some would deconstruct the work of their life. And, and see, God, what, what, am, what am I doing that holds up to what you want? But I think as, as I edge closer to 40, what I've realized is this, is that a, a fulfilling life really can't be about me. A fulfilling life cannot be focused on myself. It has to be focused on Jesus, and it has to be focused on those Jesus has put in my path and in my life. That is a fulfilling life. And that's what Jesus would call us to. He would say, deny ourselves, take up your cross, and follow me. Like, that is the path to fulfillment, is dying to ourselves, our desires, our impulse to put ourselves on a pedestal, and instead lower ourselves so we can put Christ on a pedestal. So in, in my reading, I was reading a book on, on um, fatherhood recently, and I was really struck um, by a list put in there. Is I discovered this list of, of principles. Um, they're called the Five Rules for Manhood by Richard Rohr. I would make a case you could call it the Five Rules for Maturity um, by Richard Rohr because I think both men and women need this list. I just think it comes harder for men. I'll just say that. <laughs> I think these, these things may become harder for men, but they apply to both. But these are Richard Rohr's Five Rules for manhood or five rules for maturity. And they are, first, that life is hard. That life is hard. And I need to set some context here. This is something that a father would give to his son to teach him about life. The first rule is that life is hard. The second rule is that you are not important. <laughs> <laughs> The third rule is that your life is not about you. <laughs> the fourth rule is that you are not in control. And the fifth rule is you are going to die. 
very happy list this morning. <laughs> but can you see if we live with that perspective that we might, it might lead to some maturity in life? Like, are we really living for what matters? And what matters in life is not my pleasure, it's not my happiness, it really is about others. It really is about doing the work of God, doing what he's called me to do to the best of my ability. And I don't read this list to crush dreams, <laughs> but only to help us live in reality and focus on the right thing. Focus on the right thing. And this is not to say that you are not important to God because you are, but this goes along with God's teaching of the body of Christ, that we are all of equal importance. We are all interdependent and that nobody is more important than anyone else. And we, this is in response to a culture that would elevate ourselves over, ever, over others, right? But what if we lived like these things were really true? What if we lived like, I'm here for a moment and then I'm gone? How can I make the most of the time God has given me? When life gets hard, would we be prone to complain or would we accept it as just part of life, right? Part of life. So I think if we agree with the wisdom of this list, then Jesus' call to deny ourselves and live for God makes a ton of sense. That the, the more I press into Christ, the more he's going to lead me away from self-fulfillment towards others. How can I serve? How can I love? How can I be there for others? And what we're going to see in Daniel 9 is Daniel being faithful— and taking on the burdens of his community, taking on the burdens of his people. He's not thinking individually in this passage. He's not thinking, well, I'm doing great, and those Israelites before me messed up, so that's their problem. But he actually owns it. He owns the sin of his people. He's devastated by, God, by the people's disconnection from God, and he's willing to do anything to make it right. We see a similar spirit in Moses when he pleads before God on behalf of people who have been unfaithful, and he pleads before God for restoration. We see him cry out. We see him intercede. Now, it's true that in this room, there are some of us who have a gift of intercession. There are some of us who get this naturally, who pray for others all the time. And, and that's a spiritual gift where, where you have the gift of mercy. You're able to step in and pray for others and contend, and you just get it. And I'm thankful that um, my wife is one of those people <laughs> that pray and contend and go to war. It's just part of who she is, you know, who God's made her to be is to contend for others. But just because some people have that gift, it doesn't let the rest of us off the hook. <laughs> we're all called to contend, we're all called to pray, uh, and we're all in this mess together, guys. <laughs> we're in the mess together. And so love God's way requires laying down our lives so we can lift others up. The gifts that God has given you has never been for you. It's been for the church and to reach the world. And I just want to go, I felt compelled to go to 1 Corinthians 13. Uh, as we get started, because at the core of intercession is love. Love for another. The time to lay down energy 
um, to lay down ourselves on behalf of others. So Paul gets at this in 1 Corinthians 13, verse 1. He says, If I speak in the tongues of men or of angels, but have not love, I am only a resounding gong or a clanging cymbal. If I have the gift of prophecy and can fathom all mysteries, and, knowledge, and if I have a faith that can move mountains, but have, do not have love, I am nothing. And if I give all I possess to the poor and give, what you do is about you, you're missing it. God gave you your gifts to serve and love others. You can do great things, but love is what matters most. That spirit of love. And we're here to fight for others. Our gifting is not about us. It's about others. So this, we're going to see how Daniel sets up this encounter uh, with God in chapter 9. We're going to see this heart in, in Daniel. We're going to be in Daniel 9, verse 1. It says, In the first year of Darius, the son of Xerxes, a Mede by descent, who is made ruler over the Babylonian kingdom in the first year of his reign, I, Daniel, understood from the scriptures, according to the word of the Lord, given to Jeremiah the prophet, that the desolation of Jerusalem would last 70 years. So I turned to the Lord God and pleaded with him in prayer and petition, in fasting, and in sackcloth and ashes. So what you need to know, I'm going to try to make sense of, of what's going on here. Daniel is compelled, not by a, a current event, not by a, a, a report from someone else, Daniel's compelled to intercede because of something he reads in Scripture. Daniel's compelled to intercede for his people on what he reads from the prophet Jeremiah. He learns, and he didn't know this before, that the exile in Babylon was supposed to last 70 years. And because of that, he's looking at the state of his people now, and he's thinking, I don't have a lot of time. I don't have a lot of time. And I don't know if they're ready to go back. And so Daniel feels compelled to pray for his people, to make sure that they are right before him. And so it's, it's pretty cool that, that even just reading through Scripture, we naturally get a heart for others. We're able to see clearly the state of the world and the state of the people around us. Another thing that's wild is we might assume that a biblical hero like Daniel knew everything about Scripture. But here he learns something new. And he's like 80 years old at this point. And so I think that that is this call to always keep learning, always keep reading. God always wants to teach us. And so what's his burden? He says, my people have suffered, but have they truly repented? Like we've suffered 70 years uh, at the hands of Babylon, we've been ripped. But have we learned the lesson that God wants to teach us? Are we ready to go back? And he's not sure. So he, he takes on a posture of repentance, of sackcloth and ashes. He fasts. He lowers himself before God. He begs for mercy. And I think this, this posture should challenge all of us. Like, do we take our own sin that seriously? I think sometimes we want to just manage our sin, but, but kind of like brush it off. Like, yeah, it's not that big of a deal. But if you see Daniel and you see how those who have who've actually like gone before the throne, how they feel the weight that their sin is to them, like it's pretty profound. It has a huge impact on them. 
And some of you today might be like, no, I feel my sin. <laughs> like, I'm, a, I'm well aware uh, of where, uh, where I've messed up. But for some of us, it might be that we take things too lightly. Like, that we're not owning our, our flaws, our sin. We're not, we're not um, lowering ourselves, not so that, that God can just keep us wallowing in the mud, but so that he can actually restore us and transform us. And so it's good to grieve over our sin. It's good to see it as an offense before God, not so that, not so that we can um, just stay in the mud, but so that, that we can get to a place of true repentance, because God can work with that. God can work with those who humble themselves. So let's look at Daniel's prayer, starting in verse 4. It says, I prayed to the Lord my God and confessed, Lord, the great and awesome God who keeps his covenant of love with love him, commandments. we have sinned and wrong. We have begged and have rebelled. We have turned away from your commandments and laws. We have not listened to your prophets who spoke in your name to our kings, our princes, and our ancestors, and to all the people of the land. So here we have Daniel owning the sin of his people. And as you read this prayer, I don't know what words stick out to you, but I know there's two words that stick out to me. One is the love of God, that, that God loves his people. And the other is we. We shows up a lot. And if you've been with us in the book of Daniel, you've seen really nothing but faithfulness from Daniel. Like, you haven't seen a ton of flaws um, in Daniel. You see his faith be resilient, oh, time and time again. The, the guy just got out of the lion's den, you know, probably when he writes this. But yet he uses the word we to talk about the sin of his people. He says, we have been wicked. We have not listened. We, not they, not, not those guys in the past, not, not the messed up part of my family, but we. We have sinned. Daniel stands in it with his people. That, that's intercession, to stand in it before God. To stand in it, to stand in front of his people for God. That's the posture of intercession. And we can learn that God wants us to fight as one because we're one family in Christ. God has called us to each other to care about where each other are at spiritually, to care and own the burdens of each other. When one is hurt, we hurt. We're supposed to weep with those who weep, mourn with those who mourn to church. If there's something going on, we're supposed to talk about it. And I wonder how comfortable you are in, in terms, thinking in terms of we. Because there's a burden in that word we. I know for me, if it was up to me, I, I, I'd love to live in, in like a bubble type environment, you know, where I'm really unaffected by what happens in the world, unaffected by what happens by those in, you know, in my community. If others make mistakes, it's okay. I got my bubble, right? <laughs> this is kind of like God popping the bubble, right? God wants to pop our bubble. <laughs> and God wants us to be burdened. We have responsibility 
as followers of Christ. We have responsibility for our family, for sure. Like, that's in there. That's our, that, that's, that's our first responsibility, is to care for our families. We also are called to our neighbors. What's the second greatest commandment? To love our neighbors as ourselves. And there's a whole lot of people that, like, even the person who, who brought the, the question wanted to clarify who his neighbor was. And I'm sure you have people you want to clarify. You want me to love my neighbor, but not that neighbor, right? <laughs> and that's probably the one that Christ wants you to love the most, is that neighbor. So whoever came to your mind first, that's the one that Christ is calling you to love. So our family, our neighbors, and our church. God wants us to be clued in to the health of our community. God wants us to be clued into the health of others, clued into the burdens that others are carrying. He doesn't want anyone to suffer silently, but, but to be in an environment where we lift up the burdens of each other. And even when we deal with sin, it's not to shame people, but it's to restore people, right? It's to help the people walk in the grace and freedom and forgiveness of Christ. So we have these three areas of responsibility. If you want to break it down that simple, family, neighbors, and the church. And if we got those right, that would change the world. If we could get those three circles right, if we took, if we took our family seriously, our neighbors seriously, and our church seriously, it would change the world. And we have the responsibility in Christ to love and support each other well. And our calling is not about me, it's about we. Our gifts are supposed to support the rest of the body. It's supposed to um, shine light to the world. And sometimes those, our callings are tested in tough times, and we have to decide, am I going to be about me or we? And here, Daniel chooses to identify with his people. It's like, no, we're in this boat together. I am one of you. I am in it with you. And we've seen Daniel be brave, basically on his own, but here he comes and he, he cries out to God on behalf of his people. So we're going to continue. This is Daniel ver, uh, 9, verse 7. Lord, you are righteous, but this day we are covered with shame. The people of Judah and the inhabitants of Jerusalem and all Israel, both near and far, in all the countries where you have scattered us because of our unfaithfulness to you, we and our kings, our princes, and our ancestors are covered with shame, Lord, because we have sinned against you. The Lord our God is merciful and forgiving. Even though we have rebelled against him, we have not obeyed the Lord our God or kept the laws he gave us through his servants, the prophets. All Israel has transgressed your law and turned away, refusing to obey you. So we see this again. We, 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 and we see ownership. Daniel owns the shame. He doesn't deflect it. He's like, nope, I'm in this. I own it for my people. Uh, we, we are at shame. We have shame before you. And he asks for God's mercy and forgiveness on us on us as a people. Again, this is not an easy step to take when we live in an individual world, an individualized world, but that's, that's the desire, God's desire for all of us is that we would intercede, that we wouldn't say like Cain, 
like, am I my brother's keeper, right? I'm not my brother's keeper, come on. But that we would actually own it, we own each other. And if that seems unfair, I just, I, I want to remind you of this. If Jesus distanced himself from our sin, we'd all be toast, right? If you want to look at the ultimate example of intercession, look no further than Jesus. Look no further than Jesus. In 2 Corinthians 5.21, it says, God made him who had no sin to be sin for us so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. So this intercession thing, it's not just here in Daniel, it's the heart of the gospel. Jesus was perfect, but he had with us to the point of dying for our sins. He made our sin his sin so that he could die, so that he could die for us and, be, and free us from our sin. He owned it, and that's good news for us. That's good news for us. Jesus did not distance himself from us. It doesn't mean that Jesus sinned. It just means he took on the burden of our sin to the point of dying for it in the most brutal way possible. And so Jesus owned your sin, so you don't have to own it. It's you've been free. You have forgiveness. If you have made Christ your Savior and Lord, you have forgiveness, and that is good news today. And so only through experiencing the forgiveness and love of Christ do we have any chance of extending that kind of love and forgiveness towards others. It's only when we know the love of Christ that we would be able to extend that to others. And so if we're in a place where we don't feel like we owe anyone anything or anyone owes us anything, then there's no way we'll get there. We need to go through Christ today in order to have a heart of intercession. We need to allow Christ and his love to break our hearts for others. So, with that said, let's skip down to verse 17. Daniel says, Now, our God, hear the prayers and petitions of your servant. For your sake, Lord, look with favor on your desolate sanctuary. Give ear, our God, and hear. Open your eyes and see the desolation of the city that bears your name. We do not make requests of you because we are righteous, but because of your great mercy. Lord, listen. Lord, forgive. Lord, hear and act. For your sake, my God, do not delay, because your city and your people bear your name. So here we see Daniel turn towards the glory of God. God, would you change your people, not just for our sake, but for the sake of your name among the nations? Would you restore your people for your reputation to shine a light to the nations around, around us, to, to make your name greater? And you see Daniel appear, uh, appeal to the mercy of God. And I love this line because it's, it's so gospel. It's so gospel. It says, we do not make requests of you because we are righteous, but because of your great mercy. Just that we don't deserve anything. Right? There's, go to Romans. There's no one who does good, not even one. Right? But the goodness of God is a free gift to you. It's, it's because God loves to give mercy. God loves mercy. He loves to show mercy and to show mercy on his people. And so 
We don't appeal to God because we are good enough. That's the path of religion. We can only appeal to God because he has a merciful heart, because he wants to show us all mercy. It, doesn't, it, it isn't dependent on what we do or what we've done, only on the mercy of God. The choice is ours. Are we going to humble ourselves under the mercy of God? Are we going to decide, like, yeah, I actually need that mercy? What Daniel is not doing is going up to God and saying, hey, I just got out of the lion pit, okay? So I want you to do this for me, right? He's not showing his 80-year resume of faithfulness, right? He's not, he's not doing anything like that. And if, and if Daniel's not doing that, then we can't do that either, right? The only reason... That, that we can, we can have uh, a, a full life and that we can live free is because of the great mercy of God. It's because of what he's done, nothing, nothing that we've done. We've just got to learn to trust and love and get to know Jesus. That's our job. And so we've just got to be humble enough to say, God, y you do it. I can't do anything. I can't. I, I can't atone for all my sin. I can't make right, but you do it. And, and that's the heart we, we all need. And so none of us graduate from being in the need of the mercy of God. And the great news is that God is faithful to give mercy to us, to give grace and mercy to us because he loves us. So... That's the heart of intercession. So we see Daniel crying out. We see him owning the sin of his people, but we see that his great trust, he's, he's not confident in his resume. He's not confident in what he's done. He's not confident in his skill or ability. His confidence is all in the love and mercy of God to go before him. And so that should encourage you that prayer and intercession is not for the few it's for everybody. It's not for those who have been a Christian for a long time. It's, it's for you right now. It's for you right now. So as I talked about in the beginning, that's this wave of intercession that comes through Daniel 9. But there's also these two waves I want to talk about because there are a few people in here interested in prophecy. So you've been waiting like, okay, no. Uh, but you've been waiting, but yeah, there is, there is also a, a, a prophecy wave and a controversy wave in the response that God has towards Daniel. We see God respond to Daniel in, uh, in, with a prophecy. So let's look at this. This is verse 20. It says, While I was speaking and praying, confessing my sin and the sin of my people Israel and making my request to the Lord my God for his holy hill, while I was still in prayer, Gabriel, the man I had seen in the earlier vision, came to me in swift flight about the time of the evening sacrifice. He instructed me and said to me, Daniel, I have now come to give you insight and understanding. As soon as you began to pray, a word went out, which I have come to tell you, for you are highly esteemed. So what I love about this is, is uh, there's a lot I love about this. First is, just to wrap up the intercession thing, Daniel is confessing his sin and the sin of his people. So he doesn't neglect the me for the we. He, he owns me and we. And, uh, 
And then we see the angel Gabriel. The other cool thing about the angel Gabriel, the only other time Gabriel shows up is to this young girl named Mary you may have heard of around Christmas time to tell her that she would be the, the mother of Jesus. So Gabriel shows up, and, and this is what I love. So he says, as soon as you begin to pray, a word went out. So God didn't wait till Daniel was done with his spiel. He went right away, right? Because God knew the heart. And then the other part is the affirmation that you are highly esteemed, that, that, that God honors that faithfulness. So anyways, Gabriel swoops in, and Daniel gets, I don't know if he was expecting an angel to show up. I don't know how often we expect angels to show up, but it's a pretty big deal. And this is what the angel says. First, he declares 77, such I mentioned before, over Israel, uh, before the end, basically the, the end of, of their sin. And we're going to jump to verse 25. He says this, No one understand this. From the time the word goes out to rebuild Jerusalem, an anointed one, the ruler, comes. there will be 77 and 62 sevens, with streets and trenches, but in times of... After 62 sevens, the anointed one will be to death and will have nothing. The people of the ruler will come, will destroy the city and the sanctuary, and, and desolations have been decreed. He will confirm a covenant with many for one seven. In the middle of the seven, he will put an end to sacrifice and offering, and at the temple he will set up an abomination that causes desolation until the end that is decreed is poured out on him. What is going on here? That's a lot. All right, I'm not going to nail it all, I promise you. Um, but what is going on? So we, so, so yeah, I mean, I'm, I'm kind of lost for words right now. Um, no, what is clear is that Jerusalem is to be rebuilt. And if you read Nehemiah and Ezra, that's what happens. After 70 years, Jerusalem is rebuilt. They rebuild the walls. They rebuild the temple. They restore the nation of Israel. And so that is to happen. Haggai is also talks about the, the restoration. All that happens after this moment with Daniel. And so you could say that those 62 sevens take us from that time to the time of Christ. And many have said that. Um, some have said it took it from the time of um, the, 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 the time of the restoration to an event that happened 160 years before Christ uh, with a Greek general named Antiochus Epiphanes who basically brought a pig into the, the, uh, the temple and sacrificed it on the altar and, and um, desecrated the temple. Some would point to that event. Um, but, yeah, I think, I think it, for, for me, I think it makes more sense that the, the, the period of 62 sevens would take us up to the time of Christ, is what I, what I, what I think. I'm not saying I know. You'd study it, and, and then preach next year on it. I give you, it'll be awesome. Somebody take it, own it, preach it next year. But, um, but it's this idea of weeks, which we think is seven years, periods of seven years. And then it says the anointed one is put to death. I, I've got to think that that's Jesus. The anointed one's put to death, and then the city and sanctuary are destroyed. So in 70 A.D., 
the Romans destroy the city and sanctuary. They destroy in this, this totally seismic change and persecution of, of the Jewish people. So in this part, when it talks about the anointed one and the people of the ruler who will come and destroy the city and sanctuary, I think that they're talking about Christ, the anointed one, dying and Rome leveling the city in 70 AD. And I think that too, because if you go back, um, Rome in this book, in chapter 7, is set up as the huge juggernaut empire, like the main enemy of, of the book. You guys hanging with me so far? Yeah. All right, all right, cool. Um, so I, I think that, that that's what that's saying. But let's, that's the, let, that's the prophecy, but let's get to the controversy, um, if we weren't in the controversy already. Um, but this last part has been a cause for, uh, maybe conversation is a better word. There's been a conversation in the church for a long time about what happens right here. When he says, he will confirm a covenant with many for one seven. In the middle of the seven, he will put an end to sacrifice and offering. At the temple, he will set up an abomination that causes desolation until the end of his decreed is poured out on him. There are four major interpretations of this. I'm only going to focus on two, which are kind of the two main ones. Um, the first one is that this is, again, referring to Jesus in 70 AD. That um, the abomination that causes desolation is when the curtain in the temple is ripped in two. And the presence of God leaves the temple. So that is... That is one interpretation, and, and many people believe that. I definitely see, like, a lot of, um, that, that fits easily with, with Daniel. Some people would look further ahead, further ahead in, in um, even, like, Book of Revelation stuff to a time of seven years of tribulation to come, that, that there will be a time when God is going to, come and, and or there will be a time of tribulation. God's going to deal with the Jewish nation again in a seven-year time of tribulation with Jesus, like the rapture happening somewhere in there, and, and then the, the millennial reign of Christ happening after that. And um, many people believe that, and, and that might be so. Those are kind of the two that, uh, I'll just give you that without sharing too much, because I'm still forming, like, I'm looking at, at both sides. But those are sort of the two major points. Both sides would agree, though. Which, wherever you land on that, where, wherever you land on that, both sides agree that Christ is coming back. Right? And that's the main point. The, the, the core belief of the church is not for you to sign up for one of those views of eschatology or end things. But a core belief of the church is that you believe that the Christ's return is imminent, that he could come at any time. So we're humans, we have human minds, and scripture is astounding and amazing and sometimes is like beyond us. And so I'm okay leaving some mystery in there. Because actually what would be better is for me to give you a little bit and for you to actually study it, right? For you to read up on it. 
for you to seek the Lord on it. And I would love to, if somebody in a year has, has a, a uh, feels like they've heard from God on it, like, I would love to hear that. But those are sort of the two major views. It doesn't mean that if you believe that, um, if you believe that this is referring to Jesus in 70 AD, that you don't believe in a rapture, because Jesus teaches on the rapture, and uh, and and Revelation, um, <clears throat> you know, it doesn't mean that that um, you're disregarding in, in any of what's in Revelation either. That can still fit in there. But like I said, there's there's room for interpretation here, and so I just wanted to to get you started. <laughs> so thank you. All right, we made it through. All right, um, but wherever we land, whatever we land, the goal is not to be able to interpret everything, but to stay faithful to what Christ called us to do, right? To stay faithful to what Christ wants from us, right? When he left, he gave us this thing called the Great Commission, right? Where he asked us to go out and make disciples, to baptize, to teach, right? And, and that's the work, ultimately, that we are called to do. In the work that God's called us to do, part of that is intercession, we can't do anything apart from this connection with God called prayer. We, 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 can't, we can't bring about change without seeking the only one who can, can actually change anything. Right? So God would call us in faith to pray, to point others to Jesus, to encourage and challenge others, and to pray. God has given us people to love and intercede for, and that is our focus until he returns because he is returning he is coming so as i thought about this today i actually want to want to do something i hope you don't find too uncomfortable but if we give a message on intercession i thought why don't we just take an opportunity right now to intercede for each other why don't we instead of like sitting on a message about intercession what if what if we just break up into some small groups, like two or three, and just spend some time praying for each other. So here's a question that we can consider uh, as, we, as we do that. How can we fight for each other today in prayer? You know, it's really lonely if you try to live the Christian life by yourself, right? And that's not how God intended it. When Jesus came on earth, he wasn't a solo preacher. He had 12, a community of 12, and then a community of 70. He had a, a core community of three. Jesus surrounded himself in community, and he calls us to do the same thing. So I don't want this to seem intimidating to anybody. If you've never really prayed for someone, just consider it practice and know that, like, this is a gracious room. So, um, so what we're going to do, we're going to um, I'm going to pray, but then I want you to, to break up into groups of two or three and just pray and ask, you know, share, share to the degree that you feel comfortable, share a burden that is in your life right now. Like, what's something that, that we can pray for? That might be it being, you know, it's a, it's a physical thing that, that you're dealing with that we need to pray for. Um, it's something at work. Um, just whatever it might be, we're going to share that and, and spend some time, a couple minutes praying. While we do that, Bonnie's going to lead us um, in a song. And then when you're done praying, you can, you can join uh, worship. So let me pray and then um, find a couple people and we'll pray together.
Lord God, I pray you'd make us like Daniel, that you would shape our hearts to want to intercede for others. Lord, that you would give us hearts that, that cry out on, on behalf of others, that love others to the point of chasing, uh, ch chasing after them, Lord. And so, God, I pray that as we take some time today to pray for each other, that you'd be lifted up and glorified in this. We thank you for this time. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, find a couple people, and let's spend a couple minutes praying.